Why don't you um, turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And um, I want to remind you that you each have directions inside your bulletin on how to get to uh, Tracy tonight. And for some of us, we really need to follow these really good, like me. Um, last night, it was so fun going to, uh, I had three parties I went to. I was just the party animal last night. Came home on Friday night after a week in Mexico, and um, I am not tanned. I don't lay out, so wouldn't even know it. But uh, was able to go and, and really just get encouraged and inspired and, and ready to do uh, what God has called us to do as a ministry. We, we were meeting on a regional level, international level. Regionals came in from all over the world, from uh, Mexico, South America, Europe, everywhere. And it was just a really great, great time to uh, just be with everybody. So um, you'll be hearing a lot more as days go on of some of the things that we're going to be doing internationally, regionally, and also locally. So it's a good thing. So uh, you have your Bibles in First Timothy chapter 1? Okay, before we do, I found something off the Internet. For those of you who are married, uh, these are the Valentine's Day Ten Commandments. Okay? For those of you who are married. Now, that, a long time ago, they used to call, like I remember, like in the 50s and 60s, when you had um, uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they used to call, uh, the guys used to call the girls their main squeeze. Remember that? Okay, some of you don't want to remember that, but you did. Okay, so these are the Valentine's Day Ten Commandments. Number one, I am thy main squeeze. Thou shalt have no other squeeze before me. <laughs> Number two, thou shalt not take the name of thy squeeze in vain, nor badmouth him or her behind his or her back. Number three, remember our anniversary and keep it holy or else. <laughs> Number four, if you notice, it goes right along with the Ten Commandments. Honor my father and mother. Thine are just too weird. <laughs> Number five. Thou shalt not kill my love by behaving tackily or cause undue embarrassment when I am with thee. Number six. Thou shalt not commit adultery, nor shalt thou even think about it, lest you be smitten from the earth. Number seven, thou shalt not steal from my wallet or purse while I am in the shower, nor use my credit cards, nor make long-distance phone calls from my cell phone. Number eight, thou shalt not talk about our personal problems to our friends. Number nine, thou shalt not covet the higher market price of thy neighbor's house without per first putting down the remote and learning how to use a paintbrush. And number 10, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's main squeeze, nor his son, nor his daughter, nor his stereo, nor his BMW, nor anything else that belongs to your neighbor. I thought that was funny. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, we're going to read um, two verses, actually one and a half verses. And the Lord gave this to me when I was uh, in Mexico and I really feel this is what he wants me to share this morning. Verse 19, 
and 20a. It says, this command I entrust to you. And it says, my son Timothy, and I put in the words, Church of Hayward. This command I entrust to you, Church of Hayward, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Go ahead and have a seat. About three years ago, our family went on a vacation up north where we rented a boat and we were staying on a lake for a whole week. And there was one time where, uh, I don't know where everybody went, but the only ones that were on the boat that were left were me and Val. And we were on this huge lake, the Sacramento um, Lake up there. I forgot what it's called, but it's huge. And it goes on for miles and miles and miles. So it was hot, and Val and I decided to just jump in the water. So we're, we're in the water, and we're talking, and we're laughing, and we're, I don't know, reminiscing, and we're just kind of, you know, going on like you do when you're in the water. And before we knew it, we looked up, and the boat was far away. It was way out there, and, we, and I got scared because, you know, we had been out there longer than what I had thought. We were out there like well over an hour, an hour and a half, and somehow the current had caused us to drift. And, um, but just the fact that the boat was so far away, I, all of a sudden I got tired. I was like, I don't know if I can swim all the way back. But what had happened was that we didn't notice how far we have drifted because we were so in tune into our conversation, so in tune of laughing, so in tune of just what we were doing that the beach where the boat was, those voices got pretty distant and the noises got pretty distant, but we didn't notice. We were far away. And while we were talking, we were actually moving. We didn't want to drift. We didn't want to move away from the boat, but somehow, some way, we found ourselves drifting because we didn't have an anchor. We didn't have anything that kept us there. And so there was nothing to stop the current from moving us further and further away from where we started. And that's sometimes what happens to us on a spiritual level. Sometimes we're just kicking back and we're relaxing and we're thinking, everything's fine, everything's okay. Nothing's going wrong. Things are going good. The house is quiet. Nobody's yelling. Nobody's screaming. You know, I just got my paycheck. The car is still running good. Everything's going good. And then all of a sudden, we look up and we realize that the voice of God is so far away. We realize that the people of God in the church seem so distant from us. We walk into church and we just feel so alone. We feel like we can't connect. We feel like we're just doing the motions. Most of us don't drift on purpose. The word drift means to wander from a set course or point of attention, to stray. And it's easy in our relationship with God for our point of attention to be turned away from God to other things. 
When we find out we drifted, we wonder, what happened? What was, what, what was I doing? How did I find myself in this place? Now think of an inner tube going down a river, the raging waters, going down the Colorado Rapids. You know that you would not be able to drift going down those rivers. You'd have to stay awake. You'd have to stay alert. Why? Because there's a lot of boulders. There's a lot of rocks in those rapids. And you'd have to be able to stay aware of what is happening as you're going down the river. We have to concentrate on what we're doing. And this is what happens when God sends battles into our lives. He sends them and we feel like we're going down the roaring rapids. But he does it for a reason, so that we can stay focused. We can stay concentrated on what we're supposed to do. If all of our Christian walk was like the lake, where the current could just drift us, we would not be able to grow. We would not be able to mature. We would not be able to become the men and women that God wants us to be. It's impossible to sleep and fight at the same time. You can't do it. When you turn on the news today, the leading stories are pretty much about the war in Iraq. And there have been Americans that have found themselves at the mercy of the Iraqis. Those who have been questioned, some of them have been brutally maimed, maimed, some of them have even been killed. And as we read history books, there have been many wars and battles that have been fought. There have been soldiers that have been taken prisoner prisoner of war. Some of you may even know some people or have heard of some people or read of some people who were prisoners of war during the Vietnam era. And there's a lot of books and articles that have been written about the punishment that was inflicted upon prisoners of war. No one went into the war wanting to become a prisoner of it, but somehow, some way, they were on the lake thinking everything was fine, thinking everything was okay, and the enemy came in and caused him to become a prisoner of war. Every single one of us in this room today has received a call to join the battle. Every single one of us is a part of an army. We have been called to war, but this war is not fought here on earth against each other but it's fought in the heavenlies. This war is not fought with tanks and jets and missiles and grenades. It's not even fought with words or attitudes. This war is fought with the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. The words that summarize this whole letter of 1 Timothy are the words, fight the good fight, hold fast to faith, and a good conscience. Paul doesn't say fight a good fight or wage a good warfare. He said, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Paul is talking about the warfare of being a Christian. He's talking about living a Christ-like life in the midst of the pressures and the forces that come against us. This is the battle that we live in every single day. Paul was telling Timothy that he must read and remember the prophecies that were spoken to him. The Bible is the first source of prophecy spoken into our lives, and it is the final authority in our life. 
If we don't read the word and we don't read the prophecies given to us, then how are we going to know what changes need to be made in our life? If your Bible only gets opened on Sunday, how are you going to know God's direction for your life? Prophecies bring forth important messages of warning and also messages of encouragement. Timothy had been set apart for the work of the ministry by the laying on of hands. This was where he received his prophecy. And Paul was reminding Timothy, remember those prophecies that were given to you because those prophecies are going to be an encouragement for you for the rest of your ministry. He reminded Timothy, this is a day-to-day -day battle that we are involved in and you need to fight in order to advance the kingdom of God. This church has been given prophecies, many prophecies, and they were given to us for our encouragement and they were given to us for direction. I have had words given to me by great men of God. I have had words given to me by some of you in the church. They have been a strength to me through my storms in life. I want to share with you some of the prophecies that have been given to us just in the last year and a half. Since my husband went to be with the Lord, we've had some men and women come that have given us direction and have given us encouragement. Now, I want you to know something about prophecies today. Prophecies are not given to you for you to be able to say, okay, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to follow this. I'm just going to do what the prophecy said. Prophecy is not given to you for who you are right now. Prophecy is given to you for who you will become, for where you will be able to go if you grow, if you mature, if you pass the tests in your life. If you fall away from the Lord, those prophecies can't come to pass. If you step back from serving God, those prophecies can't come to pass. But if you continue going forward, if you continue doing what God has called you to do, if you persevere, if you endure, then those prophecies are your future. And this is what Roy De La Garza gave to us on October 29th of 2003. Three months after my husband went to be with the Lord. Actually, two months. And I just pulled some excerpts out. He says, the vision continues strong. There is not a step that shall be missed in marching forward, for these walls will be finished and this ministry expanded, says the Lord, in an even greater way. And I want to add here that the plans have been finished. They will be turned in tomorrow to the city hall building department. We're going to knock down this wall. And we are going to finish what we started. And we're going to be able to expand and do what this prophecy has said. It says, the vision will continue to reach in different parts of the world, for I have established this place, this church, as a launching pad. And it was not a suggestion of mine. It was a command. And that command was taken seriously. And because of this, says the Lord, sparks of fire shall flow from this place to the countries that are now being impacted and even to others. Get ready because I am launching others into new nations. I am taking from this place, for this place has been a place of preparation, a place of stretching. Can I hear an amen? A place of learning because I have made it so. For the enemy tried to make you sit back and relax 
And for many years and for many seasons, some of you sat back and were comfortable. But I have shaken the very foundation of this place. And I have used a series of events to bring you up to a new level of faith. I am calling you to a higher sacrifice. Now this is really something. I have not allowed a struggle to happen in this place. I have not allowed a power struggle to take over on this platform. For I have called a team, and this team is my time for now and is my purpose for now. I am teaching you to be stones rightly fit together, giving each other what you need in order that my work may be established and grow. And this team shall be a model unto others, says the Lord. They will learn from it. They will model after it. And finally, I will give the glory to no other man, for the glory is mine, says the Lord, and I will be glorified. One sows and another waters, but it is I that gives the growth, says the Lord. That was a year and a half ago. Can, I, can you see it happening? Then there was another prophecy given by Bobby Connor, and most of you don't know who he is, but it was given in Santa Rosa for Hayward, and I got the prophecy. It was on May 28th of 2004, and it says this, I saw the Lord, and I saw Hayward written out, and I saw it start shaking like this, and I'm sure he went like that, start shaking like this, and the Lord says, I'm going to shake it, but it's going to be a good shaking. He said it's going to be Ezekiel 37.7, which says, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, the rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. So I prophesied as I was commanded that there was shaking, and it was going to bring Psalms 133 into effect. The church is going to be shook together, not apart. So that's good. I saw the sign shaking, but not for bad, for good. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Then on December 7th of 2003, Dick Mills came. And he said this, This church was built on a solid rock of Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We were challenged to continue growing because when we stop growing, decay sets in. Then he gave us Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. Lengthen our cords and strengthen our stinks. Stress forth the curtain of our habitation and enlarge our boundaries because we were going to be busting out all over. We were to expand our spheres of influence. God is removing from us limitations, confinement, and restrictions. He is putting us into an arena where there is no limitation, no confinement, and no restrictions. That which he sets on our table reflects his abundant love for us. We were going to be a people who could discern spirits, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that was in December 2004. And, I mean, three. And then in December of 2004, he came with the same prophecy. And it says that we were to be a church who could discern spirits. The three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would be able to know the difference when we would hear things so that we could take proper action. We would be able to discern those who were righteous and those who were not righteous. Those who were serving God and those who were not serving God. 
God was going to teach us the difference between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Those were the prophecies given to us just in the last year and a half. And if I were to go back further, those of you who have been here longer, all they've done is built on each other and built and built and built. Dick Mills' prophecy said we would be a people who could discern the enemy called the world, the flesh, and the devil. People are not the enemy. Look at your neighbor and say, you are not the enemy. Some of you need to look at your spouse and say, you are not the enemy. Your boss is not the enemy. Your parents are not the enemy. Your teachers, your leader, your pastor is not the enemy. Even the person who doesn't like you is not your enemy. See, it's so hard for us to understand this. We think that our problems are other people. But Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't war or we don't fight against flesh and blood because people are not the problem. The world thinks if they could only get rid of the IRS or the in-laws or the boss or change the administration, those people who are sabotaging my plans, wrecking my life, making it difficult for me. But people are not the problem. Behind people is the real enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. See, the world says eat, drink, and be merry because this is all you got. Because tomorrow you die. You deserve the best. You got it coming to you. Don't let anybody stand in your way. This is the world. Then the flesh comes. And that nature that lies inside of us is called selfishness. This kind of nature loves attention. They love comfort. They love anything that is illegal, immoral, and anything that is fattening. That's flesh. This enemy is self-centeredness. That's the flesh. Then there's the devil and all the host of fallen angels. These angels know exactly how to make each and every one of us angry, fearful, discouraged, and worthless. When we feel any of these emotions, if you feel any of these emotions at any time, you will have been hit what the Bible says in Ephesians 6:11, the wiles of the enemy, the plans of the you've been hit. You've been stuck. He just got an arrow and stuck you. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't feel good today. You've just been shot, not by Cupid, but by the enemy. When you wake up in the morning and you look at your spouse and you go, ugh, you have been shot by the enemy. When you look at your kids and you go, man, they're a pain in the neck. You've been shot by the enemy. Because the Bible says that children are a heritage. They are a blessing. So if you look at your children in any other way, you have been shot by the enemy. So here's the battle. To be Christ-like, loving, forgiving, understanding, and pure in the midst of all this pressure. Like Paul says, we need to fight the good fight. Keep the faith with a clear conscience. See, Dick Mills' prophecy said that the gates of hell would not prevail against this church. But I want you to know that the gates of hell are just not going to fall down. 
Gates are a defense. If they are not challenged, they will continue to stand. And a strong, mature body of Christians has to move against them and advance. Then they will not prevail. Then they will not stand. We have some members of our church that are being held captive. The Bible says that we're not supposed to, that the gates of hell will not stand up against it, but we have some members of our church that are being held captive. You know how they're being held captive? Because of their mindset in their schools, in their colleges, in their families, in their marriages, in their minds, and in their thoughts. See, last week was the Super Bowl. I watched it in Mexico. Some of you are happy and some of you are not. I wanted the uh, Philadelphia to win. And I'm sure some of you did too, but, but if you really watch the game, you notice that the Patriots offense was good. I mean, it was really good. I couldn't believe how many interceptions were thrown. I couldn't believe how many times the, the quarterback was sacked. Every, huh, every time they lost yardage, I just wanted to just, you know, I'm one of those armchair quarterbacks. I was, I was wanting to throw something at the TV. It was real frustrating to watch if you were a Philadelphia fan. But if you're a, a football fan, you know that every great football team has a good defense. And that defense keeps them from advancing onto the end of their field. And that's the same thing that is true of spiritual warfare. When you have the right equipment, which is the armor of God, you can push right into the enemy's field. We want to push into their territory, right into the end zone, and make a touchdown for God. See, we're challenged to fight the good fight of faith. We have to fight for our ground. We need to see the battle that is going on is the spiritual battle. Don't go into your own little huddles and call your own signals. We're going somewhere together. We have an offense that knows how to score. We know how to be able to get the ball downfield. And we're not going to do it by ourselves. We're going to do it by the direction of the Lord. We are going to move in the authority and the power and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 10, 19 tells us that he has given us all authority. We need to come to overcome all the power of the enemy. Victory is ours if we're in the battle. See, you can be a part of the army, but you're not necessarily in the battle. You can be held captive by self-righteousness. You can be your own prisoner of grief. You can be held hostage by an offense. So you may have started out to be a soldier of war, and maybe you recently found out that now you're a prisoner of war. You watch others fight the spiritual war while you sit on the sidelines. You see what's going on all around you, but you really don't want to get involved in the battle. Your passion has been replaced by monotony. Your calling has been compromised by a career. I want to let you know something today that we are going to do what God has called us to do. Yeah. Aniva was mentioning that we were pregnant last year, that we birthed Tracy. Well, guess what? We're pregnant again. 
And this time, we're pregnant with twins. This coming World Conference, we're going to be sending out two churches. Walter and Donna are going to go out to San Pablo. And Anthony is going out to Fremont, Milpitas. We're going somewhere. We're not stopping moving. We're not stopping expanding. We're not stopping holding back. Every time the enemy tries to come in and gain an advance, we can fight harder. We know how to advance. We know how to gain yardage on the enemy. And the, how we gain yardage is that we just keep moving forward. Yeah, we probably took a step back or lost a yard, but now we're going to gain two, three, four, ten, twenty yards on the enemy. See, the enemy comes to sidetrack us with confusion, division, and discouragement. He's here in this church more than anybody else. Jesus knew that Satan's goal was to divide the church, was to discourage the church, which was to catch us sleeping, to catch us so that we don't know how to advance. That's his goal. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. If Jesus experienced opposition from the devil, what makes you think that we're so different? What makes you think that we're not going to get opposition? What makes you think that the enemy is not going to come and try to separate what God has joined together? Some of you wonder why the enemy hits your marriages so hard? What God has joined together. Anything that the Lord brings together in unity, anything that God brings spiritually together, the enemy is going to want to come and divide. Psalm 133 says, how blessed it is for brothers to dwell in the spirit of unity. Do you think the enemy is going to want to come and divide that? Do you think the enemy is going to want to come and bring divisiveness and discouragement? Yes. He'll try to separate families. He'll try to separate marriages. He'll try to separate friends. He'll try to separate anything that will cause a division because that's his goal. And that's why Jesus prayed for us. He prayed that we would unify, that we would lock arms, that we would join together. The real danger is not that the enemy has schemes because we are not unaware. We don't have to be a prisoner of war. We can fulfill the prophecy of discernment that Dick Mills gave us, that we would be a people who would be able to discern the difference between the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would be able to tell the difference between God's voice, man's voice, and Satan's voice. That's what discernment is. If we think we're battling flesh and blood, we are seriously mistaken because the enemy is not that organized. He has to use us to do his job. He can't do it alone. He's got to use us. How organized is that? You can't even do it yourself. 
2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The enemy wants to come and take us to be a prisoner of war. There are so many who are now prisoners of war since September 11th. After September 11th, there are so many people who said, I'm not going to fly anymore. I'll never get on a plane again. And they're letting that prison of fear keep them from going forward, from advancing. They're fearful. Many believers have removed themselves from the war in the heavenlies. Don't think you can hide from the enemy. Don't think just because you don't get in the battle that you're going to be left alone. No, you're going to get hit too. People in the sidelines, this is not a football game where people in the sidelines get to drink and have fun and talk and do all that. No, people in the sidelines get hit too. The only thing is, you get sideswiped because you don't even know it's coming. You're in the lake. You're in the lake. You're just blasé. You're drinking. You're laughing. You're clowning around. And the enemy will come and sideswipe you. Better get in the game and know where the enemy is coming from. Know how to attack, know how to advance, than to be in the sidelines thinking, I'm okay. See, we've learned a few things since the Vietnam War. Our casualties are pretty minimal now since, since the Vietnam War. There was a book called Why Germans Lose at War. One German error, as the whole world now knows, was that Britain broke the German codes. We, they knew in advance, along with us, because we were allies with Britain, we knew in advance what they were going to do because the Nazis made the mistake of believing their codes to be unbreakable. Their scientists and code experts were in the eyes of the Germans the best and they could not be broken by British mathematicians. But Kenneth Maxey, the author of this book, said the Germans fatally committed the military sin of despising the enemy. They had arrogant confidence in the infallibility of their superior genius compared to other people. See, one thing about the enemy is that he doesn't change his tactics. Once you figure out the code, and guess what? The code is your word. You can figure out the code. We can be like the British. We can be like the Americans who were able to dominate and fight and conquer the Nazis because we're figuring out the code. The code is your word. The code is your direction. The code is your secret. If you know where it is, get to it. The enemy doesn't devise new tactics. He is consistent and he is predictable. Just like we learned warfare from the wars America has been involved in, so we must learn from our own past wars. How did the enemy knock you down? How did the enemy get you to be discouraged? How did the enemy get you to be divisive? How did the enemy get you to look at people in a different way? How did he do it? Because you weren't in your word. That's the secret. That's the code. You want to be a code breaker for your life? Get into your word. Because the enemy is always going to bring in a strategy of doubt. 
It's been since the beginning of time that he's used this weapon against us. He used it on Eve. He used it on Jesus. He used it on the apostles. And he uses it on us. We doubt his word. We doubt his power. We doubt his love. We doubt his ability to see us through situations that bring us grief and pain. The enemy uses that weapon of deception against us. Now this shouldn't really surprise us because see Satan's real name is the father of all lies. So why shouldn't he try to deceive us? Why shouldn't he try to bring lies into our lives? The problem is that we believe him. Somebody looks at us crooked or the wrong way, the enemy sends a lie. They really don't like you. They didn't even shake your hand. They walked right past you. Father of all lies, where does he live? He lives right here. He comes to church. During greeting time, if you didn't get shaken a hand, that person must not like you very much. If you didn't get a hug and somebody else got a hug, oh, you really, you must smell. I mean, we go through all kinds of changes. We start going, <gasps> we start thinking there's something wrong with us. There has to be something wrong with us. There's some, you know, and then we turn it and we go, no, there's something wrong with them. We believe a lie. He will twist the truth, confusing people and lead them into error. What is so sad is that when it comes to being deceived, so many of us, we know the word. We memorize the word, but yet we fail to live by the word. We have weapons of discouragement, and this one hits all of us. It blindsides us. For some of us, it doesn't take very much. Someone will make a critical remark. Someone will say, oh, what happened to your hair today? Or maybe you just didn't wake up feeling good. Or you have family problems with your spouse or your children or your finances. or Things just are not going according to your plan. There are so many great men and women of God, those in the Bible and those that you and I know who have struggled with this weapon of discouragement. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews 10.25 that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. We are not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more when you see the day approaching. Now, you know what's really evident to me through this scripture? Is that we are not supposed to attend church. Some of you came this morning to attend church. That is not why you're supposed to be here. The Bible says you're supposed to be encouraging one another. That's your whole purpose for coming. You may have thought there was an ulterior motive. You may have thought you came to show off your new dress or your new shoes. You may have thought you came to show off your brand new suit or your tie. But that wasn't what you were supposed to come for. The Bible says you were supposed to come to encourage one another. How do you encourage somebody if you don't see them? If you come in late to church, how do you encourage? If you leave early at the altar call, how do you encourage? You're not following the biblical pattern of what God has called us to do. We are called to encourage one another. And you can't encourage somebody through osmosis. Osmosis is like, okay, I'm going to... Tim, you are encouraged. Tim, you are encouraged. Okay, I'll see you later. It doesn't happen like that. You actually have to go up to them and give them a handshake, give them a hug. That's encouragement. Some of you need encouragement, but you don't stick around long enough to find it. You don't stick around long enough to feel it or to be touched. You leave before the encouragement comes. Hang out. 
Get involved in a life small group. Get involved in a prayer group. Get involved in a ministry. Just get involved. If you're discouraged this morning, then get your weapon and fight the enemy against the attitude of discouragement. See, every Sunday, there is a call to battle that comes off this pulpit. No matter who speaks, there is a call to battle. This was the only way that Timothy could survive in Ephesus. And the only way that we're going to be able to go forward is if we close our ranks and we keep going forward and we keep encouraging one another. We have to go up and say, keep going, brother. Hang in there, sister. You're doing a good job. Let's keep going. Let's keep the drill. Oil your weapons. Maintain discipline. If there's a fight, you can count on me to fight the enemy with you. Every step we take forward is going to be challenged. Every step this church is going to take is going to be challenged by the enemy. Why? Because we have such tremendous prophecies to come to pass. If we didn't have such a call on our church, if we were just the run-of-the-mill church, if we were just the church of the frigid air down the block, we wouldn't go through anything. We wouldn't fight the way we've been fighting. We wouldn't have the battles that we've been having. But when you have a call on your life, when you have a call on a church and a group of people who have a destiny, don't think that it's going to happen just like that. Don't think it's just going to be, you know, the Lord's going to put you to sleep like in the Wizard of Oz. You're going to go to sleep and then all of a sudden he's going to wake you up and say, okay, you're in heaven now. All done. It ain't going to be that easy. You're going to have to fight for every step have to fight for every inch. Every time you get that ball, every time you're going to go forward, you're going to have to fight. The enemy's going to come at you with their defensive line, and you're going to have Refrigerator Perry come at you sometimes, and you're going to have, you know, Deacon Jones, a fearsome foursome. That's, that was my era. You're going to have them all come at you, you know, and you're going to think that I can't handle this. I can't do this. But all you got to do is look beyond because Jesus is right behind Refrigerator Perry. He's right behind Deacon Jones. He's right behind the fearsome foursome. Every step you take, it's going to be a battle. And if it wasn't a battle, then you wouldn't appreciate it anyway. If it wasn't a battle, then we wouldn't be so happy to know that we're going to advance our kingdom, that we're going to grow and we're going to allow the Lord to use this church to grow beyond our borders and to grow into other nations. We can't let the enemy use his weapons against this church. He's going to come against everything that the Lord has promised us. We have to do everything we can to protect unity and destroy the enemy of division. We have to be discerners of the spirit. We have to come prepared to fight the enemy. And when the enemy comes in, instead of everybody saying, did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear what they did? Say, you know what? Let's discern what the enemy wants to do here. Let's get together. Let's fight together. Let's war against the heavenlies. When we fail to keep and maintain unity, we are failing to keep the faith. Keeping the faith means to have a clear relationship with the Father and with each other. It flows this way and this way. You want to keep the faith? Then keep the relationship right. 
The last thing it talks about is having a good conscience. Many feel that a conscience is given to us to teach us the difference between right and wrong. That's not what a conscience is given to us for. A conscience is given to us to remind us what is truth so that we can follow that. It wasn't given to us to tell us what is right and what is wrong. That's what feelings do. Feelings tell us, oh man, this feels good. We should do this. Or, you know what, this doesn't feel too good. I don't think I should do this. Conscience says, this is right. Let's follow this. The word of God teaches us what is right and what is wrong. Conscience can be set in the right direction or the wrong direction. See, because before we got saved, we did some wrong things. But it didn't even affect us. Now that the word of God has come and cleansed us, now we're able to see what is right from what is wrong. Conscience is given to us to help us to know when we are beginning to fail or fall away from the right path. In other words, another word for conscience is an obedient heart that wants to do what God says is right. A good conscience doesn't listen to the flesh or their feelings. It listens to the word of God. And that's why Paul told Timothy, keep the faith and do what is right. Have a good conscience. And what happens is that sometimes we begin to start turning God off. We begin to start seeing things differently than the way we used to see them. We don't want to listen. And over a period of time, sometimes we can't even tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. We come to Christ and women come with the fashions of the world and they don't think there's anything wrong with it because the world has turned a deaf ear to Christ. But if we fail to listen to our conscience, then we will be in church year after year after year wearing the fashions of the world. We fail to listen to our conscience. Guys treat girls like the world with no respect or value. You know you shouldn't, but you've turned your conscience off for so long you can't tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. When it comes to your conscience, you can't argue. A con you cannot silence your conscience. It's a voice of authority. God will speak to you. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. And he will use your conscience to let you know the difference between the right way and the wrong way. We cannot say that we don't know what's right. We cannot say we don't know what is wrong. We cannot say that we don't know what is holy. We cannot say we don't know what is unholy because the Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. How can anyone fight the good fight if you have a diseased conscience? We need to be alert at all times, no matter what. When the flesh cries out, no matter what your friends say, no matter what the power of the enemy has, you hold on to a good conscience because we need to be people of prayer. John Piper said this, and I love this quote. He said, until we know that life is a war, we won't know what prayer is for. When you act according to what is right, you will have a clear conscience. You will be able to fight the good fight, keep the faith, 
and sleep with a good conscience. Can I have every head bowed and every eye closed? Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Have a clear conscience. As you sit here today, have you been lulled into complacency? Are you on that lake, distracted by a lot of other things? Are you on the sidelines of your life? Does everything else take priority over your spiritual life? Does your work and career interfere with God's will for you? Is your prayer life all the way down to saying grace before you eat? Is there something in your life that you're avoiding dealing with? Have you forgotten God's promises for your life? Do you need to have a clear conscience? If any of those things apply to you as we stand this morning and as Tim plays, I'm going to open up the altar for you to come and make it right with God. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith and have a clear conscience. You need to remember God's promises for your life. You can't give up. You have to do everything you can to fight the enemy and not each other. We have a war to win. And let me be